Today on Blue 58, we've had some time to decompress after the Packers' Week 1 stinker, but some questions remain. Can the Packers' young receivers take a step forward? And did the Packers even help them in the first place? On top of that, is there reason to be concerned about scheme on both sides of the ball in Green Bay? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for another episode. Great to be here. Uh, even if the Packers did not do what we hoped they would do in week one, it's still good to be talking Packers football. And we've got some personnel moves to talk about today. A couple things developing as, well, I guess your week gets underway. The Packers made two moves today, Tuesday. Uh, the first was moving Chris Barnes to injured reserve. It doesn't look like his ankle, let's call it a lower leg injury right now. It looked like things are going to be broken there early on. The Packers are now calling it a high ankle sprain. Some people I've talked to who know a little bit more about this kind of thing are not entirely sure which is actually worse between a a severe high ankle sprain and just straight up breaking your leg. He'll be out for at least four weeks. I would assume it's going to be longer than that, just based on how we've seen these things play out in the past. It is a bummer for Barnes uh, to head to injured reserve first, you know, for, for him because he does have a role on this team. Uh, He was right there after Quay Walker went down. Sure, limited as a player, but he gives you everything he's got when he's out there and um, really can't ask for much more from him. It's a bummer for the Packers because their linebacker depth now takes a hit. Though we do potentially get a look at an interesting prospect. We'll talk about that here in a second. The corresponding move to Chris Barnes going to injured reserve is the big man, Caleb Jones, coming up to the 53-man roster. The suspicion seems to be that somebody wanted him. Uh, A couple of my colleagues have speculated it may have been the Los Angeles Rams, whose offensive line was in rough shape in week one, to say the least. Others have speculated it might have been the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who are facing some equally great challenges on the offensive line. In any case, the Packers now have the 6-foot-9-inch, 370-pound Caleb Jones on the active roster. I think there's another reading of this as well. You could say that there may be some concerns about tackle depth. Hypothetically, if you were moving somebody, say, from right tackle to right guard. Now, maybe that's wishful thinking on my part, but I would like to see, uh, you know, Royce Newman at right guard more than I would like to see Jake Hansen there again. Hansen put up a grade from Pro Football Focus, and caveat supply there, we've had some some issues with some of their work in the past, but I think generally speaking, you can trust that their process is at least going to produce things that you can compare apples to apples. He was graded at a 14.4 for his pass-blocking efforts on Sunday. I have never seen a grade that bad from a starting NFL lineman. It was truly remarkable. Either he had the worst day of his life as a football player, or he was in a position where he was not going to succeed. And I kind of think it was the latter one for some of the the same reasons that we've talked about prior when discussing uh, Jake Hansen. If you were moving Newman to the inside, you would need a little bit more tackle depth because other than Newman right now on the roster, all you've really got for tackle depth is hypothetically um, Sean Ryan and Rasheed Walker. Now, if you're going to move say, Zach Tom to right tackle and Newman inside to right guard. You would probably want a little bit more depth at tackle and maybe Caleb Jones comes along. It could have been that it was just somebody else looking to sign him. The Packers decide that they want to keep him because you can never have too many good tackles around. And now Caleb Jones is on the 53. 
The other thing that I think we're going to see this week is practice squad linebacker Ray Wilborn heading to the 53-man roster as an elevation for this weekend. The Packers are not going to go, at least I think, into this weekend's game with just Devondre Campbell and Isaiah McDuffie as their 100% healthy linebackers. Now, there is a chance, it seems, that Quay Walker could play, but I don't think they're going to just skate by on, on just hope that Walker is better and then Campbell and McDuffie being healthy. They're going to need Wilborn there at least for special teams reps, if nothing else. Now, a quick refresher on Wilborn. He is 6 feet 3 inches tall, 230 pounds at a ball state. And I keep bringing his background up because he's got an interesting career trajectory. We've seen hybrid safety linebackers before. We've seen guys that were safeties in college move to linebacker in the NFL. What you don't see is what Wilborn did at Ball State, at least not very often. He was a linebacker first and then moved back to safety at Ball State. And it's always interesting to see a move go in that direction. So if you're looking for somebody, for something to be potentially excited about when it comes to Wilborn and excited, you know, temper your expectations a little bit. But if you're looking for a skill set that he may have, probably a little bit more coverage oriented than a guy like Chris Barnes. He's always been a linebacker for the Packers. And you're probably looking at him as a more athletic Chris Barnes. Maybe not a whole lot more athletic, but potentially more athletic. Basically a dime safety type guy. If you're looking for a more historical comp, maybe a more one-to-one comparison, think about former Packers linebacker Joe Thomas, himself a practice squad guy who ended up on the 53 for quite some time, much smaller than Wilborn, but he made it work in the NFL for quite a while just by being able to do things in coverage and be kind of that almost dime safety, but in a linebacker's body. Wilborn's a little bit bigger, If he can cover like Joe Thomas did, he's got a chance to stick around for a little while. Thomas, not necessarily a world beater, but um, an interesting tool to have in your toolbox uh, as a defensive coordinator. So Wilborn has been an object of some interest uh, to a few of my uh, Packers media content creator, whatever, colleagues for a while. Uh, We'll finally get to see a little bit of him here in the near future. I would like to talk wide receivers here for a second. We've talked a little bit about post-game about how the Packers wide receivers did. Uh, First and foremost, we need to talk about Christian Watson's no good, very bad start in Green Bay. I wrote about this for Acme Packing Company. You can find it there still. Uh, But Christian Watson got off to a bad start. It's true. He did finish with two catches for 34 yards, which, if you're just looking at it, does not look like a terribly great stat line. And it's not. I mean, if you're looking at him to put up wide receiver one type numbers, well, you were going to be disappointed to begin with, but those are not them regardless. Those are not big-time producer numbers. However, you have to keep in mind he's a rookie, and relative to other rookies, his performance was not really all that bad. Two catches for 34 yards is actually the third-best performance among wide receivers taken by the Packers in the first or second round, dating back to James Lofton. There have been 11 guys, counting Lofton, taken basically 1978 to the present in the first or second round who played receiver. Only Randall Cobb, who had two catches for 35 yards and a touchdown, and Javon Walker, four catches, 56 yards for a touchdown, have had a better performance in their week one game than Christian Watson. Devontae Adams, 
Jordy Nelson, and Sterling Sharp combined for a grand total of zero catches for zero yards. If you add Greg Jennings into that mix, you bring the total all the way up to one catch for five yards between the four of them. And if you include the great James Lofton in that group, the total skyrockets all the way up to two catches for 15 yards. If you combine the week one performances of Devontae Adams, Jordy Nelson, Greg Jennings, Sterling Sharp, and James Lofton, you still don't get the game that Christian Watson had on Sunday. Uninspiring though it was. Okay? So great on a little bit of a curve there. It could have even been worse than that. Three first or second round picks in that same span weren't even active in week one. Terrence Murphy, Robert Ferguson, and Derek Mays all outside the active roster as rookies in the first game of the season. Robert Ferguson, as a matter of fact, was only active for one game his rookie season in 2001. Can you imagine the internet discourse that we would be having if Christian Watson had been inactive, a healthy scratch for week one? The takes, my friends, would have been, well, they would have been frustrating because we would be right there with them, even if we're trying to be smarter Packers fans, blah, blah, blah. Having your second round pick a healthy scratch in week one is a justifiable take, or being angry about that is very justifiable. But at a certain point, the swirling vortex of anger would have just become too amusing to ignore. As you just try to wait and and laugh as to when Robert Ferguson or Christian Watson or whoever is going to be active, whoever the second round pick is, uh, as a rookie. The other thing, well, two other things I wanted to talk about. The first is how I think the Packers may have the wide receiver strategy here. I'm struggling with this. And it's been something that I feel like I've been harping on since about 2018. Dating back that far, the Packers had some depth issues other than Devontae Adams. They had, as of 2018, Devontae Adams and an aging Randall Cobb, and that was pretty much it. Jimmy Graham came along for the 2018 season as a essentially a, a wide receiver. But the wide receiver room was in rough shape. Then the Packers drafted Jamon Moore, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, and Equinemia St. Brown in 2018. Fine and good. But the Packers, I argued then, needed some veteran help until those guys got up to speed. And it never really arrived. Now Devontae Adams is gone. The Packers have drafted three more wide receivers. Two fairly, one one highly, one a middle round guy, but one guy they like, like a lot. And it was a struggle in week one. I don't know if it's Rodgers not trusting the receivers. I think there's a pretty strong case to be made there. But it was a fairly predictable struggle in week one. It wasn't great. And I think this is, well, it wasn't great from, from their aspect. It could have been better. But this is, I think, the Packers doing their rookies a disservice here early in the season. Dating back to essentially Donald Driver, the Packers have been very good about wide receiver succession. Think of a player's career as like an arc. You've got, when he's figuring it out, the upslope of that arc, the, the peak, which hopefully lasts for a long time, and then guys eventually decline. The Packers, prior to Devontae Adams, really, have always done a pretty good job of adding players as other players are reaching the top of that arc and beginning to peak 
and then come back the other side. You went from Donald Driver to Greg Jennings. You went from Greg Jennings to Jordy Nelson. You went from James Jones to Randall Cobb. And then ultimately you went from Jordy Nelson to Devontae Adams. But behind Devontae Adams, nobody developed. And it's not really like the Packers tried all that hard. You had Ty Montgomery. You had Jeff Janis. You had Trevor Davis. You had Jamon Moore, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, and Equinemia St. Brown. You had Amari Rogers. And now you've got the two that the Packers have now, Christian Watson and Romeo Dubs. And the Packers, I think, did themselves and these young receivers a disservice. Because you don't allow these receivers now to come along slowly. And you put these receivers in a position where they may be having their growth stunted just by the negative consequences of not being up to speed as an NFL player yet here in week one. It takes these guys a while to come along. And ideally, you would have been able to draft a guy a couple years ago who would be cresting now, and now your second round pick has some room to grow because there's a third-year player who can take some of the heat off of you and be that competent guy out there on the field while you're still figuring it out. Just judging by week one opportunities and week one performance, that guy is not Sammy Watkins. It could have been him, but it wasn't in week one. And truth be told, I don't really know what the Packers were expecting from Sammy Watkins in week one or throughout this season. They sound like they're excited about him. They have always maintained that they think there are some big things that he can do in this offense. And maybe there are. We didn't see it in week one. And I think that's part of, of what I'm trying to say here is that the, the, the Packers have not really done a good job of developing receivers as they prepared for a, a well, either a post-Devante Adams world or a world where Adams' skills were declining. Even if you signed Devontae Adams, which apparently they desperately were trying to do, he needs help. He needs another guy there who is capable of catching passes. And I'm not sure if Watson or Dubs are that guy in 2022, even if Devontae Adams is there. And I, I, I guess I bring this up because for years and years and years, we heard that the Packers didn't want to add outside talent at receiver because they were afraid of stunting the development of their younger guys. There may be something to that, but now you're in a situation where outside of Alan Lazard, the only guys that have real upside on your depth chart, short-term and long-term, I guess, are rookies. They have to develop so fast that counting on them for 2022 is it seems like misguided anyway. I mean, I think that Watson and Dubs are, Dobbs are going to be big parts of the Packers' offense, but it's going to take time. Maybe they get there sooner because they got to play all the time now, but the Packers really could have used somebody a little bit further ahead of the curve than they are right now. Somebody who's had some time to integrate into this offense for a couple of years now. It was pretty clear a couple of years ago already that as exciting as his deep speed was, Marquez Valdez-Scantling was pretty much a one-trick pony. He could get deep and he could get there fast, but that was pretty much all that he could do. 
Equinemia St. Brown was never healthy enough for long enough to really develop. And that's a shame because I think he has a really, well, it, it's obvious. He has a very desirable skill set and, you know, physical attributes and things like that. But he just couldn't stay healthy and long enough to develop them. And the Packers added nobody else. There is a pair of names that I'm trying very hard not to say. But the inevitable conclusion is that guys like T. Higgins or Michael Pittman or even Chase Claypool would have been real helps over the past couple of years and in a game like Sunday. And that is that is part of the process stuff that we've always talked about with the Jordan Love pick because even if Jordan Love does develop into a the Pro Bowl caliber player that he needs to be to justify that selection, in the meantime, you're essentially down a key player and you're down a developmental prospect. Now, and, and to be fair, if, if Jordan Love does turn out to be that quarterback, it's going to erase a lot of future situations where a guy like that would have mattered. In the meantime, it still stinks. And the Packers have been shorthanded at receiver for a while now, in part because of that pick and in part because the Packers made different choices other points along the way too. And you're seeing some of that come home to roost here early in the 2022 season. Now, we've got one other question I want to take up related to wide receivers. It comes from Repe Sebe in our Discord server. He asks, maybe this is a Blue 58 question, but how often would you say hands issues with wide receivers dramatically improve? Is there much data to show this as a trainable trait or something that's much more likely to be an innate quality? I think there is something to the idea of hands being an innate thing. Your starting skill level with your your hands, I think, is definitely an innate, an innate thing. But I think it is something that can also be um, be improved over time. Let's look at Devontae Adams as somebody who did improve over time. And, and on top of Adams, we do have a good amount of anecdotal evidence that suggests that there are guys who can improve their hands over time. Devontae Adams, we've seen him do it. James Jones did it for the Packers too. Jordy Nelson did it for the Packers too. Jones is my favorite guy. Because if you believe what he told the media during his early career struggles, what really helped him turn the corner was when he would split out wide wide for a play, he would be screaming to himself, focus, 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 just as loud as he possibly could, trying to get himself to to dial in for that play. He said he got some, some very odd looks from opposing defensive backs, but it appears to have worked for him. Circling back to Adams, I think a couple of the things you can look at are um, catch percentage and drop percentage. And I'm going to, hopefully this week, if things go well, if, if we have the time that we anticipate having over the next few few days, I'm going to publish a little bit more research on, on how these development trends go, digging a little bit deeper into the data. But if you look at catch percentage and drop percentage, I think you can get a pretty good idea of what it looks like when a guy improves his hands over time. Catch percentage is just the 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 percentage of catches that you make on the targets that you have. So Devontae Adams, just to, just for instance, as a rookie, caught 38 of the 66 passes that came his way for a catch percentage of 57.6%, according to Pro Football Reference. That was down to 53.2% in 2015, jumped up to 62% in 16, 632 the year after that, and up and up and up and up until in his final two seasons, he was at 77.2% and 72.8%. Now, part of that has to do with the depth of route that you're running, 
But if you look, and you're just going to have to take my word for it on this because I don't have the numbers in front of me, if you look at his drop percentage at every route depth that pro football focus charts, all of them went down over time. He was consistently catching more passes at every depth. If you look at his drop numbers, drop percentage, the percentage of your targets that you drop, these two went down over time. 8% as a rookie, 15.6% his second year, 9%, 6.3%, 4.3%, up to 8.3% in what looks like 2019 that was, or 2018 that was, down to 1.5% in 2019, then 2.9% in the next year. I think it got the years off there, but it, you, you see the point here. It went down over time. He was dropping fewer and fewer passes. Adams became a more reliable receiver over time. I think it is something that can be improved. I don't have a whole lot of concern with that aspect of Watson or Dobbs' Dubs game. Um, if there is a physical attribute, and I think catching is as much a physical attribute as like a mental attribute, it's the hand-eye coordination. If there is a physical attribute where I think you're going to be a little bit short as a rookie and it's fine, it's catching. Because you can learn how to catch. You can't learn how to run faster. And if nothing else, Christian Watson can run really, really fast. We saw that for sure on Sunday. He actually was one of the four fastest ball carriers in the league just on one of those end-arounds that he took, the one end-around that he had. He broke 20 miles per hour on his, uh, his top speed there. And I would just about bet my next paycheck that had he hauled in that deep pass from Aaron Rodgers, Aaron Rodgers, he would have been the top guy in the NFL this past Sunday because he can fly. And I hope the Packers make work of getting him the ball on deep shots more in the future. I've got a couple questions here about scheme stuff, but first I want to take a second and shout out Patreon supporters Dusty Evely, Jim Jonas, and Kenneth Davis. I'm grateful to each of you for your support. And I want to mention a new benefit uh, that you can receive by being a Patreon supporter. As I mentioned, uh, every time we talk about this, if you support us on Patreon, you can have a membership into our Discord server. As part of that Discord uh, stuff that we're doing, you are now able to watch me tape episodes of Blue 58 live. We stream those things live through um, through Discord, and you can check in on what we're doing uh, as we record those episodes uh, as we go on. So, Head over to patreon.com slash thepowersweep and take a look there. Uh, maybe consider supporting us on Patreon here in the near future. So the final questions we have about week one come in a discussion we had in our Discord server, and I think I want to take a second and expand on these a little bit. Uh, regular contributor there, uh, QHM, posited this question that led to a, a lively discussion here in our Discord server, and I thought I'd bring it over here because I think it's worth talking through a little bit. He says, is it crazy for me to say I'm not entirely convinced of Joe Barry or Matt LaFleur schematically? And my short answer is no. I don't think it's crazy on both Barry or LaFleur, but I think we've got to add some caveats to both. Now, Barry, I think, so Joe Barry, we've got to do a little bit of a history thing here first, because first, it's worth pointing out that he was not the Packers' first choice at defensive coordinator. The job was first offered to Jim Leonard, now and still, I guess, at the University of Wisconsin. That's who the Packers wanted, first and foremost, and he said no. 
Then the Packers went back to the drawing board and came out with Joe Barry, current Denver Broncos defensive coordinator Ajiro Averro, a former Packers assistant, quality control uh, assistant back in 2016, the other finalist. Joe Barry got the job. And Joe Barry, if you have some scheme concerns with him, I think that's valid. Because his career to date has basically involved just being essentially the dime store version of more popular defensive coordinators. He got his start as an assistant under Monty Kiffin in Tampa Bay, running the Tampa 2. And he eventually used a similar version of that scheme when he was the defensive coordinator for the Detroit Lions. And gave up a whole bunch of points doing that. And also was coaching with his father-in-law. Rod Marinelli. He then got a job with Washington running an entirely different scheme that he had picked up from a former assistant of Wade Phillips. So now he's running the 3-4, running a version of Wade Phillips scheme. It goes not super great either, better than Detroit, but still not super great. Then he heads out west, works for a time under Matt or uh, Sean McVay, not Matt LaFleur, though I guess technically with Matt LaFleur there for a little while. But more importantly, he works under Brandon Staley, who's running a version of the Vic Fangio scheme. And now Barry is bringing that scheme to Green Bay because he apparently knows it well. And that's something the Packers wanted to run with um, with Barry here in Green Bay. So Barry arrives in Green Bay because he could run a version of a more popular scheme. And... You know, I understand the approach there. I think it's one that could probably, in the right circumstances, win you a Super Bowl. But I think if you have concerns about Barry schematically for those reasons, those that's valid. Because he's not the mind behind those schemes. He's merely a guy who knows them. Now, LaFleur. Is it okay to have schematic concerns about Matt LaFleur? I think less so than with Barry. Because with Lafleur, the innovation is there. A couple big things that he's done really well is figure out ways, along with Adam Stenovich, to be sure, but to maximize his offensive line talent by figuring out ways to put guys in spots that you wouldn't typically expect them to be and make it work. The Packers' offensive line under Matt Lafleur has really been defined by moving guys all over the formation. Guys can play left tackle and right tackle, guard on both sides, guard and tackle. That is a credit to LaFleur and a credit to him building his staff and having guys like Adam Stanovich who can make that work. LaFleur's use of the quads formation and taking advantage of the new innovations in that trend in the NFL right at the cutting edge. Uh, There are numerous reports out there, numerous deep dives on how he has used that for the Packers in ways that nobody else really is in the NFL. That's schematic innovation. And you don't really see that from from Barry. If you listen to the most recent episode of the Repack podcast uh, from Acme Packing Company, Justice Mosqueda and Tex Western do a great job of breaking down some of the early schemes the Packers used in that game. Diverse, not necessarily innovative from Joe Barry there. But he does get it done and do some interesting things too, usually. Sunday, maybe not a great example, but he, he can be effective. 
that's not to say that there shouldn't be some concerns because primarily what he's doing is running somebody else's defense. On the floor, I think there may be some concerns there too. Concerns because almost I think he tries to get his scheme to do too much. I think if you look at that uh, red zone possession where the Packers ended up um, not converting the fourth down there, trying to run to A.J. Dillon and uh, Aaron Rodgers doesn't pull the, the, the ball there on the, the, the RPO. Uh, he looked like he could have just strolled into the end zone, but I guess we'll never know. Um, going with an RPO there on fourth and a yard to the end zone seems symptomatic of something that we've seen from Lafleur pretty consistently, especially in short yarded situations, where it almost like it's almost like he tries to get too clever, too clever by half. I think is the expression that I've used before. He just cannot let his players execute there. He's got to make the exact right play call. When in reality, what you should probably do is get into a power situation and let A.J. Dillon hammer away a couple times and let the chips fall where they may from there. He's a power back. Let him be a power back. Don't run from a passing formation in a situation where Dillon can't let him himself get up to speed, can't get up to speed because he's starting from a standstill taking the ball. Is that a schematic concern? Maybe not. We might be splitting hairs there a little bit. But I think there there are reasons to be, maybe if not schematically concerned about Lafleur, tactically concerned, because it does seem like he makes those errors fairly consistently. Now, he does have a, an excuse that Barry doesn't really have, because some of the things when it comes to Lafleur's offense breaking down in games where things don't go well may not really be his fault. We've talked a lot about my theory of the Matt LaFleur microchip that everything goes well when you've got this this complex machine going a million miles an hour, you know, whirring pieces sliding in all different directions, immense calculations, probabilities, things like that. It's wonderful when it's working well, but when a grain of chip enters the microchip or a grain of sand enters the microchip chip, everything breaks down. If one simple little thing goes down, the entire Lafleur offense seems to fall apart. Now, that may be a schematic problem for Lafleur, but we've also got to remember that there's another guy who has a say in this offense, and it's Aaron Rodgers. There's the offense that Matt Lafleur wants to run, and then there's the offense that Aaron Rodgers will run. And getting Rodgers to be 100% on board with the things that Matt Lafleur wants to do is, well, it has been a challenge, and I believe it is still an ongoing challenge for Lafleur and for the Packers. Because Aaron Rodgers has a lot of experience in a different system, a lot of experience doing things the way that he wants them to be done. That's not to say Rodgers is necessarily wrong, because a lot of the things that he does are, you know, they they work. A lot of the things that he does don't always work either. But he's been pretty darn successful doing things his way for a, a pretty long time here. And I think if you're expressing schematic concerns about Matt LaFleur, it's always good to have that in the back of your mind because Rodgers has a way of imposing his will on those sorts of things. And I think we saw a good bit of that on Sunday. When things look static in the Packers' offense, when the things look like it's boiling down to one guy beating another guy one-on-one, that tends to be the Aaron Rodgers' offense. When it's guys winning because they're operating within the the structure of the offense, that tends to be Lafleur. 
And as you evaluate Lafleur schematically, it's good to keep those sorts of things in mind. That's all I've got for you in this episode. I appreciate you listening in. I appreciate it even more if you would take a second and share this with someone you think would enjoy it as well. It's going to help more people find the show, and it's going to get more people involved in the conversation that you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.